listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. So our scripture for today is Mark 13, 1 through 13. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be, and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. As for yourselves, beware, for they will hand you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings because of me, as a testimony to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Sibling will betray sibling to death, and a father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you for that reading, Carrie. Not a very uplifting one today. Um, Before we get started, I should say... um, I take sermon titles way too seriously, especially when I try to be clever with the punctuation. So it's not Apocalypse Now, it's Apocalypse Now. That matters only to me. It's fine. I just had to get that out there. I'll talk to a therapist. Um, (laughs) We're starting a new chapter of Mark today, uh, Mark chapter 13. This is probably uh, one of the most confusing, uh, misunderstood, and ominous parts of Mark's gospel. Uh, We're going to be spending a few weeks in this chapter because there's a lot here to unpack. And that also means that our next three sermons, at least today and the next two Sundays, are going to be very interconnected. There's going to be a lot of overlap, a lot of themes and ideas that we're going to be tracing throughout. Uh, So if you already know there's going to be a Sunday in the next couple weeks that you won't be here, uh, these would be good sermons to, you know, jump online, YouTube, the website, the podcast feed, and listen to what you miss because there's going to be themes, there's going to be connections you can make. Now to set the stage uh, for this section and kind of where we're at, where we've been, uh, Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple and they're heading out of Jerusalem. For the last few weeks, we've been working through this section Uh, where Jesus is squaring off with the religious leaders in the temple, the back and forth with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. That part is over. Uh, We are now heading out of the temple and away from the city. And as they're leaving Jerusalem, the disciples start to marvel at all these wonderful buildings. 
Uh, verse 1. <clears throat> As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Remember, Jesus and disciples are from Galilee. They're from the north country. It's the sticks, basically. Um, if Rochester is Jerusalem, Jesus and the disciples are from Kendall. Okay, that's, that's kind of the connection here. Um, these, are, these are country boys. These are, these are farmers, shepherds. They're in the big city, and they're marveling at all these towering buildings. It's like I remember the first time that I visited New York City. Uh, I was in high school. I think it was senior year. And uh, I remember riding the bus into Manhattan, going between the buildings, and like the buildings were so high you couldn't even see the tops of them. It was just like concrete everywhere you looked. Being from Pennsylvania, I had never seen anything like that before. Believe it or not, the Amish don't build a lot of skyscrapers. That is what the disciples are experiencing in the opening of this passage. They see the big city, they see all these huge buildings, and it just takes their breath away. And because of that, <clears throat> I imagine these next words from Jesus were probably troubling. Verse 2, <clears throat> then Jesus asked him, you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. What a buzzkill, you guys. <clears throat> it's all coming down. All these beautiful buildings, these impressive structures, it's not going to last. Not one stone will be left upon another. To give you a little sense of like what this looked like, what they were looking at, um, I, I got an artist's depiction of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. Um, this would be the view from like the Mount of Olives, which is where they headed uh, in this passage, basically kind of where they were standing. Um, you can see the temple. It's this absolutely massive structure here in the foreground with the, the smoke coming up. You've got the temple courtyard, which is like this giant platform uh, that the temple sits on. And then you've got hundreds, I don't know, maybe thousands of smaller dwellings, buildings, things like that behind it. This is the ancient metropolis of Jerusalem. And if you know your history, Jesus' words came true. About 40 years after this, uh, around the, uh, well, in the year 70 AD, the Romans swept through and destroyed Jerusalem. They demolished about a third of the buildings. They slaughtered the people and they destroyed the temple. Um, have you ever seen the Wailing Wall? Anyone ever see like a picture of the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem? We've got a picture here of that. Um, this is a sacred site um, where people will come to pray. Uh, they bring written prayers and they'll actually stick them in the cracks of this wall. That's all that's left of the temple in Jerusalem, the temple of Jesus' day. In fact, if we go back one slide, go back to that picture of Jerusalem, see the, the platform the temple's on and those massive walls? The Wailing Wall was one of those walls of that platform the temple sat on. That's all that's left of the temple. This is where the chapter gets a little confusing, though. We know about the destruction of the temple. That happened. We can date it. That's what Jesus seems to be talking about. But then we find language in this chapter as we go on that sounds a bit bigger than that. Uh, this comes from later in the chapter. We didn't even get to this part yet. Uh, verse 19. For in those days there will be suffering such as has not been from the beginning of creation. 
The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the heavens, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Heaven and earth will pass away. Now, the temple was destroyed almost 2,000 years ago. We know about that. We can, we can date it. But we're still here, right? Yeah. We're still here. We're still here. Um, heaven and earth have not passed away. So what exactly is Jesus talking about here? It sounds like he's talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the destruction of the temple. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. That's the most obvious reference in context. But he's using this apocalyptic language to do it. Now, when you hear the word apocalyptic or apocalypse, what do you think? Word association. Where does your mind go? Zombies. We'll get there, believe it or not. We'll get to zombies. Where does your mind go with apocalypse? Destruction. End of the world. Yeah. When we hear apocalyptic, we think end of the world. Um, But apocalypse at the time of Jesus actually had a slightly different meaning. Um, Believe it or not, apocalyptic back in the first century was a genre of literature. So we have genres today like romance and comedy and action. They had apocalyptic, slightly different time. Um, They had a genre called apocalypse. It was a style of storytelling that was super popular among Jewish people at the time of Jesus. Jesus is using apocalyptic language. So to understand it, I want to actually break down for you guys uh, a little bit of what this apocalyptic form of storytelling looked like. Um, We've already got that it was a genre of, of ancient Jewish literature. Um, we've talked about some of this in our Revelation Bible study. I can see if anyone remembers who was here. What does the word apocalypse actually mean? Anybody know? Revealing. Yes, the word apocalypse means to reveal, to unveil, to pull back the curtain. The idea with apocalyptic storytelling is they looked at the crises of the present, what was going on in the world around them, and they pulled back the curtain to show what was really going on. What is God up to? How does this present crisis fit into a larger story. Uh, Apocalyptic storytelling tends to be very cataclysmic. There's a lot of very violent imagery. Moons turn to blood, suns go dark, Um, you know, stars fall from the sky, famine and war wipe out entire populations. You find that in apocalyptic storytelling. There's usually a really clear division between good and evil, good guys and bad guys, us and them. It's very black and white. And in part, growing out of that, apocalyptic literature looks forward to God's judgment. It looks forward to this time when God is going to come to judge the wicked and give victory to the righteous. God's going to deliver us, and God's going to crush all the people that are crushing us. That was a big theme of apocalyptic. And finally, apocalyptic literature also makes predictions Um, about how all this is going to go down, like what's going to happen when, uh, with an eye to the end of the world, using very end-of-the-world terms, stakes. That is apocalyptic literature in a nutshell. Didn't know you'd be getting a college lecture today, did you? (laughs) Um, This is the vehicle, this is the genre that Jesus is using to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, we have literally dozens of examples of Jewish apocalyptic literature from about this time period. Some of them are in the Bible. They were that popular. Um, The book of Daniel 
which we looked at what, maybe like two years ago. That's an apocalyptic literature. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. This section of Mark, uh, Mark 13, which is often called the little apocalypse, which almost sounds cute, right? That's a good little apocalypse. You know, that's kind of what I think. Um, there's other examples of apocalyptic that aren't in the Bible. Um, there's stuff like the book of Enoch, the apocalypse of Abraham, the apocalypse of Adam. Not in the Bible, again, but really popular at the time of Jesus. You can actually Google some of this stuff and read it. There are English translations for free online uh, if you're a fan of nightmares. It's, it's fun bedtime reading. This was probably one of the most popular forms of storytelling at the time of Jesus. And if you know the context, it kind of makes sense, right? The first century was not a great time to be Jewish in the Roman Empire, in case you didn't know. There was no king in Jerusalem, at least no respected, recognized king. You had Herod, but no one respected Herod. He was, he was a puppet of the Romans, wasn't even a descendant of David. Uh, the prophets had fallen silent. It had been generations since anyone received a word from God. The temple was corrupt. The people were living under foreign occupation. You had Roman soldiers in the Holy Land. We have similar issues today with soldiers in the Holy Land. You had all these wars and rumors of war. Violence was an everyday occurrence. Fear, intimidation. Of course, they were ready for the end of the world. Of course, they were ready for God to show up, clean house, and set things right. It is not that far off from what a lot of people are feeling today, right? We have corruption. We have ineffective government, wars and rumors of war, broken institutions, pandemics, economic crisis after economic crisis. You've got countries with nuclear weapons invading other countries. And it's all playing out on the backdrop of just general ecological climate disaster. We are living in very apocalyptic times. And just like back then, you can see this reflected in the stories we tell ourselves. We're getting to zombies, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you remember, like a couple years ago, zombie movies had a real moment. Uh, you had all this stuff, Zombieland, Walking Dead, 28 Days Later. It was like every month, practically, there was a new movie or a new Walking Dead spinoff with different takes on this end of the world. Um, our culture also really loves disaster movies, right? Like a lot of the big budget summer blockbusters are these movies that envision, you know, comets, uh, earthquakes, Godzilla, <laughs> violence and chaos on a, on a global scale. You can even see apocalyptic themes in comic book movies. Uh, do we have any Avengers fans here? Any like MCU fans? Wow, like four of you. That's, uh, you guys got to watch more movies. Um, all right. <clears throat> comic book movies, in uh, some of you haven't noticed, are having a real moment right now. Um, and just like with apocalyptic literature, Comic book movies tend to draw really clear lines between heroes and villains. Uh, just last weekend, I took the kids to see the new Thor movie, Thor, Love and Thunder. Uh, it was okay. <laughs> it was, I won't ruin it, no spoilers. Um, it was about what you'd expect from a movie subtitled Love and Thunder. There was love and there was thunder. Um, <laughs> That's my review of, of the movie. Uh, here's a picture of Thor Odinson, uh, played by Chris 
Helmsworth, he's ripped, he's dashing, blonde hair and blue eyes, of course. Um, and in this movie, Thor goes up against a character named Gore. Thor and Gore. Can you tell which one's the villain? <laughs> yeah, they make it pretty clear for us. When the institutions we depend on are failing, uh, when we don't have any heroes left in government or religion, we gravitate toward these stories with really clear distinctions between good guys and bad guys, just like they did. Now, it'd be one thing if this was just art, right? It'd be one thing if this was just like movies and TV shows, but art reflects life, right? There's like this, this connection. And in response to all the crises we're seeing, all the things we're dealing with day after day, a new one, we are seeing some really scary apocalyptic stuff. Conspiracy theories are gaining traction in our culture. You even hear conspiracy theories from like high-ranking officials in government. Um, QAnon, replacement theory, some of this like really wild stuff is getting traction. Conspiracy theories are just modern forms of apocalyptic, by the way. Uh, they're an effort to pull back the curtain and show what's really going on, to take uh, whatever crisis is in front of our faces and case it within some larger narrative, even when that narrative isn't true. People are arming themselves in like record numbers. Doomsday prepping, we even see this from Christians. Um, there's always been a subset of Christians that was, you know, fascinated, obsessed with the end of the world. Um, but we're seeing more and more of this. Uh, back in the 90s, we had the Left Behind series. Did anyone read Left Behind? Yeah. Not, wow, not many. I love this church. Um, <laughs> I did. I read, the, I read the first four books, Left Behind. It was a series, like 12 or 16 books, uh, that basically envisioned in, in very, like, raw and vivid terms what the events of the book of Revelation would look like, you know, today. Um, they even made a film version of this a few years back uh, starring Nicolas Cage, and it is as bad as you would think it would be. Um, <laughs> But before we had Left Behind, uh, we had this book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Does anyone remember this one? Hal Lindsey, Late Great Planet Earth. This, yeah, Ron knows it. This came out in 1970. Kathy knows it. It was the highest-selling nonfiction book of 1970. It was written by Hal Lindsey. Uh, he was a pastor and, and a bit of a, a, a self-proclaimed prophet. Um, in this book, written in 1970, Hal Lindsey says, We can't exactly know when the world will end. But based on what we see, based on how predictions in the Bible are being fulfilled, we can expect, we can be sure that the world will end by 1988 at the latest. <laughs> I remember I read this book in 2007, and I remember I got to that part, <laughs> and I was like, well, this is awkward. You know, um, <clears throat> should have put that in the introduction, it would have saved me some time. <sighs> and again, if this was just all books and movies, that'd be fine, whatever but it's not. Christians are the group most likely to be doomsday preppers. Did you know that? Us with like, you know, the hope of the Holy Spirit and, and you know, what Jesus is doing in the world. We're the most likely to be doomsday prepping. We're just as likely to be stockpiling guns, uh, just as likely to demonize the other side and present every issue like it's an end-of-the-world crisis. There was a poll just a couple weeks ago. Uh, it asked Americans, 
Is it more important to compromise with those we disagree with and find common ground, or to beat them and win? That was the question. And majorities of Americans across demographic lines said, amazingly, it's more important to compromise and find common ground and solutions. With one exception, there was, there was one group in this survey that thought it was more important to defeat our enemies than compromise, and it was white Protestant Christians. So much for love your enemies. Yeah. We're obsessed with the end of the world. We're fascinated by the end times. It's like we are ready to get out of here, to just leave the world behind, let God judge it all. And it's really easy to read Mark 13 through that lens. But I don't think that's where Jesus is pointing us. Jesus uses apocalyptic imagery. Bring that list. Here we go. Get that list back up. Jesus is using this genre. He's using these, uh, these kind of forms and ideas that would have been really familiar to his audience to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, but there are some important differences. Uh, for one, Jesus doesn't try to predict exactly how and when this is all going to happen, which is amazing because if anyone could predict it, you'd think it would be him. He doesn't give the day and the time, in fact, just the opposite. He says, but about the day and the hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only God the Father. Jesus doesn't know when this is going to happen. Also, while we do find violence in Jesus' vision, uh, he's not celebrating it. He's not rooting for it. Um, Jesus doesn't declare that God's going to come destroy the, the, the wicked and deliver the righteous. To the contrary, he warns that the righteous are going to suffer. His followers are going to have it worst of all. This is verse, uh, from verse 9. As for yourselves, beware. They will hand you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me. We said that apocalyptic makes like really crystal clear black and white distinctions between good and evil, us and them. For Jesus, it's a bit more blurry. Uh, verse 12 Sibling will betray sibling to death and a father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. I don't like that distinction between us and them personally. Like if those are the dividing lines, count me out. You're going to be handed over to councils, beaten in synagogues. This isn't some outside threat, some invasion by unbelievers. These are their own institutions their own families, their own houses of worship that are going to turn on them. This came true for a lot of these early Christians. Mark's audience was made up of Christians who would have been disowned by their families, chased out of the synagogues. They would have read this, and it would have resonated. I know it resonates with some of us. If you've ever been chased out of a church, um, if you've been attacked by someone in your family, if you've been let down by the system, this is what Jesus is talking about. This is what he's warning us about. Um, I had a family member recently who said something really stupid. It wasn't Aaron, so I could say that. Um, <clears throat> but this is someone I've known my whole life, like since I was a kid. This is someone I love and care about. We were talking on the phone, and of course politics comes up. And this person was like, 
What we really need in this country is a civil war. And I was like, are you nuts? A civil war? No one wins a civil war. Like, even if you win, you lose too much when neighbors are against neighbors and siblings and cousins and family are fighting. No one wins a civil war. It's the worst-case scenario. It's really easy to get swept up by this rhetoric. It's easy to get all tribal and root for God to come crush our enemies, but what if your enemies are your parents or your siblings or your children or your neighbors? None of us should be rooting for that, not if we follow Jesus. The words of Jesus look pretty different from all these things we typically see in apocalyptic. Go to that next slide, I think, all the apocalyptic stuff. And here's where I find the biggest difference and probably the biggest source of hope. Jesus insists over and over again that this isn't the end. All this end-of-the-world imagery, all this destruction, but he keeps coming back to the point that this isn't the end. Uh, Verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginnings of the birth pangs. You're going to think the world is ending, but it's not. Not yet. They're going to beat you in the synagogues, haul you before the magistrates. Don't lose hope. This isn't the end. I will be with you. The Holy Spirit is going to be with you and will give you the words to say. You're going to lose your temple. All these buildings are going to be torn down. There won't be one stone left on another. It's going to feel like the end of the world, but it is not the end. It is only the beginning. I'll still be with you. God's Spirit will be with you, and we're going to have work to do. The good news has to be proclaimed. There's an incredible hope buried in this section of Mark. And it's the hope that this isn't the end, not yet. As long as we're here, as long as we're alive, as long as we're breathing and God's Spirit is within us, it's not over. We're told to be ready for the end. Be prepared. Don't get too attached to all these big, beautiful buildings you see around you, but that doesn't mean we should be rooting for it. Doesn't mean we should be checked out and waiting for God to just whisk us away because as long as we're still here, there is good news to be proclaimed. Now, as I said, it's going to take some time to work through. So we're going to be unpacking what this stuff looks like over the next couple weeks. We're going to come back to this. We're going to tease this out. We're also going to read some of the really weird stuff that's coming in this chapter. Um, But we're going to talk about what some of this stuff looks like on a practical level. Uh, For now, though, the biggest takeaway I want you to leave with is that as Christians, we are not called to be an apocalyptic people. We're called to be a Jesus people. We're not called to be an apocalyptic people. We're called to be a Jesus people, a people of hope. We should not have our heads in the clouds speculating at the end. We shouldn't be working through theories of how it's going to go down, when's it going to happen, is the president the Antichrist. That is not how Christians are called to spend our time. 
as Christians, we should be the most grounded, the most present. We should be the last people being sucked in by conspiracy theories and doomsday prepping. We have a hope in us that can move mountains. And we're called to manifest God's kingdom here on earth for as long as we're on earth, and we're still here. When institutions fail us, as they will, when buildings crumble, as they will, when crises arise, we should be the ones picking up the pieces and embodying that hope centered on Jesus. We're going to dig more into this in the coming weeks. We're going to get more practical. Um, But for this week, I do have something extra for you. Uh, If you grabbed your bulletin today, pull out the the going deeper section. Uh, We give this to you guys every week. It's on the flip side of the announcements. Um, it's, let's see. Um, oh, if you're watching us online, you can actually get the bulletin. Uh, it's on the online worship page of our website. Uh, we give this to you every week. It's a way to go a little bit deeper into the teachings and take it throughout the week. And for this week, uh, we got two things here. The first is to read Mark 13 in its entirety. It's not that long of a chapter. You can probably read it in about five to ten minutes, uh, but take some time to sit with this passage this week. You know, read it a couple of times, meditate on it, read it, and then make yourself some tea and go for a walk and think about it. Ground yourself in this text this week. Imagine what it would, would have been like to be one of those disciples marveling at those buildings and then hearing this. Or imagine what it would have been like to be uh, one of the Christians in Mark's audience who's already been chased out of the synagogues and disowned by your families, hearing this. That's thing number one. Then the second thing we've got here uh, to get into this personally focuses on verses 10 to 11. I'll put them up here on the screen. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. But say whatever is given to you at that time, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And we've got some prompts here, some questions to help you reflect a bit on that good news and your own experience with the Spirit. Um, Spend some time with this this week. Grab a copy of the bulletin. Uh, If you didn't get one coming in, they should be at the Connection Center. Um, plan to be here for the next two weeks or to catch the teachings you miss as we go deeper into this chapter and unpack more of what this looks like and how it applies to us. Does that sound like a plan? Excellent. Uh, Let's pray. God, help us over these next couple weeks uh, as we dig into this very ominous-sounding section of Mark's gospel. Open our eyes eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to the good news that you have for us in this passage, Lord. May it lead us to a more faithful engagement with the world as your disciples, and may it lead us away from some of the dark, apocalyptic impulses that so captivate our culture. Guide us, Lord, with your insight and wisdom. So in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at Brockport FB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. 
Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.